You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Good to be with you this morning. Welcome. Welcome to New Life. A special welcome to those who are tuning in on the live stream or watching the live stream later. We're glad you are joining us virtually. We're in a series going through Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. He's writing to Christians who, like you, are experiencing trouble and uh, affliction, persecution. And and one of the faith realities that was uh, sustaining them was the expectation of the future return of Jesus uh, to judge the world and to set all things right. They were hanging on to that truth. And uh, that's what we're going to read about today. Paul's going to be addressing the, the future return of Jesus Christ. We're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, it's printed for you in the uh, folder, worship folder, if you don't have your Bible with you. This is God's Word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Sorry. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our minds today to understand this difficult text, to grasp truth about your future, and may that future have a real impact on on how we think and how we live today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the person who Paul called the man of lawlessness here is who John in his letters called the Antichrist and probably who Jesus was referring to uh, as the abomination of desolation. I realize um, that there is a kind of magnetic power to biblical teaching about uh, the end times, uh, a power that incites uh, curiosity and encourages speculation. I grew up as a, as a young Christian, 
uh, during the Jesus movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s, that was a time of tremendous interest in, in the end times. One of the most pop popular speakers uh, at the time was Hal Lindsey, the author of the late great planet Earth. He was, uh, he was really on the speaker's circuit back then. And you know, a lot of that teaching involves uh, predictions uh, and, and uh, best guesses about how this is all going to come down and, uh, you know, talking about times and, uh, and specific uh, identities of the parties involved in all of these things. Uh, unfortunately, um, you, you know, the, all, all, most of that speculation and guessing, if not all of it, has, 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 has been, uh, you know, off base in the details um, for 20 centuries. And here's the problem, all right? The Bible isn't informing us about the end times in order to give us names and dates and timetables and to answer, answer all our curious questions. I know we have them. The purpose of the Bible's teaching about the future is always and only to fortify the faithful to live without fear in the present. I'm going to repeat that. I, that truth hit me in seminary. As we studied Revelation, I was, uh, you know, one of the things I was looking forward to in seminary was figuring out the book of Revelation. And that meant sort of figuring out all the details. And, and when I learned that, look, uh, we can't figure out all the details, uh, but this is written to real believers, real believers in time, at the time, and, to, and it still speaks to us today in such a way that it fulfills its purpose, and that is to encourage us in our present difficulties, right? To live without fear in the present. That's, that's what Revelation does. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 does. The purpose of the Bible's teaching about the future is always and only to fortify the faithful to live without fear in the present. And, and you know how that phenomenon works. In this digital age, right, you can watch a recorded sporting event and you already know that your team has won. And so when you're watching that event and you know your team's won, you process what you're seeing on the screen differently, don't you? Right? You're, not, you're not in despair uh, wringing your hands when your team falls way behind in the score because although you may not know the details, uh, you do know that somehow, some way, this team was going to overcome that deficit and win. It affects how you watch it, right? In a similar way, the Lord wants you to process your present realities in light of His future realities. Remember, the future belongs to the Lord. So with that in mind, what I want to do with you this morning is, is, is to unpack what Paul teaches here about uh, the second coming of, of Jesus under three headings. First, what, is this, what this text tells you about the present, okay, right now. Second, what this text tells you about the future. And then third, we're going to get practical. We're going to look at the implications for your life in the present in light of what Paul teaches us about God's future. Okay? So it's the present, the future, and then how to think and live in the present in light of the future. What are the implications for how we live as Christians? Okay? So that's where we're going. First, what this text tells you about the present. I think there are three big things that were happening with the Christians here in Thessalonica 
that are still happening with you today in your present. First, verses 1 and 2, bad teaching. Uh, That's present company accepted. The Thessalonian Christians were being taught uh, that the day of the Lord had already come. It was sort of like a first century version of left behind. And they were shaken by this teaching, alarmed by it, um, deceived by it. Well, you have people knocking on your door probably once a month, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that very same error. That is part of their doctrinal package. The day of the Lord has already come. But actually, we've got probably more serious and more relevant teaching errors out there today. A lot of Protestant churches, more on the liberal spectrum, uh, today deny that there is going to be a literal, physical return of Jesus. Uh, they spiritualize it. They say, no, it, that's just, it's just a metaphor for a, a spiritual return. And in fact, Jesus returns every time someone comes to faith in him. Now, I'm not, so, I'm not absolutely sure why they are, seem to be embarrassed by a literal, physical second coming of Jesus since th- they have to believe in a literal, physical first coming of Jesus. I, I, I suspect it has something to do with the purpose of the second coming, which largely revolves around judgment. And it's an attempt to, to uh, you know, shave the edges off the hard truth of that reality, that there is a coming divine judgment. But probably most relevant and most troubling and increasingly common. There, a lot of churches, uh, especially in the West, uh, are in one way or another teaching that you, as a Christian, can have the blessings associated with the end times today. It's, it's, it's a kind of variant of the health and wealth gospel. Right? That God wants you healthy. That God wants you happy. That God wants you wealthy. That God wants you blessed. That God doesn't want you to suffer. And that that can be a reality for you as a follower of Jesus Christ today. Well, that confuses and upsets a lot of Christians when inevitably those promised blessings don't materialize they're left questioning God they're left questioning their faith they're left thinking maybe I don't have enough faith what does Paul do here when he's when when he's dealing with this error they're 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 shaken up these Christians about the the uh, the end times and and Paul says in verse 5, don't you remember I told you these things? And we, I, I think in some way we ought to take that to heart, to be grounded in the present. You need to be grounded in the past. And, the, and one important part of the past is Paul is the apostolic teaching, is the old apostolic witness and teaching if you move off that it's like you know Paul's saying don't you remember I wrote it down if you move off the apostolic teaching you're going to end up like the Thessalonian believers you're going to be shaken you're going to be alarmed you're going to be deceived and Christians more than anybody else ought not to be shaken, alarmed, or deceived by what's happening around them. So we can be grounded in that old, faithful, apostolic witness and teaching. 
So that's the first thing about the present, bad teaching. Second thing, second present reality. Um, the Thessalonians were suffering and so were you. Believers in Jesus in the present will suffer. You will have trouble, affliction and persecution, and it's going to continue. And aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But that's the consistent testimony of Scripture. Why is that happening? Why is that true? Well, Paul shows us there in the first part of verse 7 one of the root causes for the fact that we experience trouble and suffering and persecution today is because the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's not like lawlessness is waiting for the appearing of the man of lawlessness, uh, right? Lawlessness is already operating uh, in, in our world. John, the Apostle John, said the same thing in his letter you, with different terminology. Right? 1 John 2.18 You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Already in the first century, there, there have been uh, Antichrists coming. Not the Antichrist, but Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Both Paul and John are, are, are calling us to the root cause of, of our trouble, affliction, and persecution in the present. This spirit of the Antichrist is at work. Lawlessness is already at work in our world. Now, lawlessness, if you're like me, you think of lawlessness as um, law-breaking. Right? I, I, I recognize there's a law here and I'm, and I'm going to break it. I'm not going to obey it. Actually, lawlessness is, is, is deeper than that. It's, it's act, it, it is... It's denying the reality and the authority of the lawgiver, right? God himself. So, so, you, so you say, now, you know, I, I don't even acknowledge a lawgiver. If he's there, I ha he has no authority over me. And in fact, it, the lawlessness then goes on to, to manifest itself as, as people saying, and, and the reality is, I am my own law, right? I decide uh, what is right uh, and wrong. I decide uh, what is good or bad. Paul described the same exact phenomenon in Romans 1. We could unpack that. We don't have the time. But I certainly don't need to tell you guys, right, that this, this, is, this is the spirit of our age, right? We're, 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 it, this is unquestioned and it's applauded right? It, 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 it's increasingly seen in, in, the, in, in ed education, in, in academia, uh, really everywhere, right? There is a, a growing uh, skepticism, a growing unbelief in, in, in God, a growing uh, s sense that, uh, you know, he's, he's really irrelevant, uh, has no authority, uh, over me and, and of course it, it's it is unchallenged that 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 you know we decide what's 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 right and wrong for us and and that's why if you're a faithful follower of Jesus you're you're going to be opposed and and have all of the trouble and suffering associated with that because just by your allegiance to Jesus you are standing against this current of the lawlessness that's, that's at, alive in our, in our culture. The spirit of Antichrist. If there's a silver lining to this <laughs> darkness, there, there is, there's one fact that Paul lets us in on, is that yes, we're going to suffer. 
yes, there are, the spirit of Antichrist is at work and our, our suffering is real, it's going to continue, but, and as bad as it is, it could be worse. God is in fact restraining this lawlessness. God is at work mercifully restraining it. Now, theologians have spilled a lot of ink about, how, you know, what does Paul mean and how, what are the mechanisms by which God does that? I, I don't think it's very helpful to get into those speculations, right? Is it, the, is it government? Is it the church? I suspect it's, it's a lot of things. Ultimately, it's God. God is, is, is restraining evil. Verse 6. And so as bad as, as it is, as real and deep as your sufferings are, Without the merciful restraint of God, we would all be experiencing something worse. Okay, that's the second reality of our present, right? Bad teaching, current suffering. Third, and, and this is really a word for those of you who aren't Christians. And, and I know that every week we, we have people either here or tuning in that, that are not um, believers. I, we... we we welcome you. We thank you for, for being here and listening. But, but Paul says a lot here that is relevant to, to unbelievers in the present. And, and, and what, what he's in effect saying is, look, there's, with this spirit of Antichrist at work, the, this mystery of lawlessness, powerfully active in our culture, uh, it's very easy to get caught up in the current. If you, I mean, if you do nothing else, you're going to get caught up in that. You're going to get swept away by the spirit of the age, right? You're going to treat God as, as, as kind of optional or irrelevant. Uh, you're you're going to unquestioningly see yourself as the definer uh, of right and wrong. And, and in doing that, what... What Paul says both here and in Romans 1 is that you're, you're basing your life on what he calls the lie. The lie. Uh, it's, it's obscured a bit in our English translation here. In verse 11, where Paul is talking about unbelievers, that, that, and he says they, that they may believe what is false. You see that there? In the Greek, that actually literally says, so that they may believe the lie. And we know from Romans 1 that what the lie is. The lie is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It's, it's not saying, listen to me, unbeliever. It's not saying, you know, you're a bad person. It's not saying you're a criminal. It's, it, it, in fact, you may be, probably are, a good person as society values good. It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The lie is having a, a this world is all there is sort of perspective on life. And the danger here, the present danger for you, is that if you live this way, if you live that lie, that this present world is all there is. And therefore, it's all about the creature and, and you've written off the creator. Uh, you, you are in the process of dying. Right? You've disconnected yourself from the source of life and like a wind-up toy, you're winding down. Verse 10, Paul describes people caught up in the lie as those who are perishing. It's a present process. And if that's not sort of dire enough, verses in, at the end, verses 11 and 12, Paul in effect is saying, look, if you keep refusing the knowledge of Jesus, if you keep straight-arming the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, you are eventually going to put your, yourself in a position where you will lose the choice, right? You will, I mean, you will, not, you will not ever acknowledge Jesus. You won't be able to turn to him. Here Paul talks about sending a spirit of, uh, of delusion so that you believe the lie. 
in Romans 1, Paul talks about that same reality as God giving you over to your own desires. It's one and the same thing. He, he's, he's, in effect, surrendering you to your delusion. It's why C.S. Lewis said, hell is self-chosen. You're going to reject God and you're going to enjoy it all the way to judgment. It's, it's, it is a, it's a frightening reality. It's an ugly reality. And it's not who you want to be. So, so really, listen, I'm, I'm glad you're here, but this, this is a serious word to those of you who, who have not uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're listening. Maybe this can be the first step towards making that decision. Okay, that's, that's the first point. That's, that's our present, all right? Um, what does this tell us about our future? Well, again, three big things, I think, about the future that are relevant to you and me today. First, um, there's no, you, you don't have to worry about what the Thessalonians were experiencing. You, you do not have to worry about missing the day of the Lord. Because in the future, when the day of the Lord comes, it will be obvious. So Paul is, is saying here, look, he says, you're not going to miss the day of the Lord. There's no way it's already come because it's going to be preceded by two things, two events. And these events are going to be obvious to Christians. All right? Um, what's the first one? Verse 3, what Paul calls the rebellion. Uh, you have, you, your, your Bible may say apostasy. That's actually more literal. They're both good translations. The, the Greek word is apostasia. So it's a rebellion. It's an apostasy, which, in its, which indicates that the rebellion is, is Godward. Right? It's a rebellion against God. This isn't talking about some kind of inter-country war. This is, the, this is a kind of final, major, definitive, worldwide attempt to eradicate God from the planet. That's the first thing that's going to happen. The rebellion, the apostasy. And then the second event, and it's really part of it, it's sort of that might culminate it uh, is is the is the appearing of the man of lawlessness the antichrist um, this is the definitive antichrist the one that all the antichrists that have come through the centuries have anticipated and he is going to do some extraordinary things right he's going to put himself in the place of God He's going to perform signs and wonders, uh, backing up that claim. Uh, and he is, by, by claiming to be God, putting himself in the place of God, he's going to, of course, demand worship. He's going to demand worship of people in the future. This is all in verse 4. And, and this is happening. Why? Because God has... Is, it, decides at, the, at that point in history to lift his restraint. His restraining power that's operating now is going to be lifted. That's verse 7. Right? And, and so this, I mean, it, this, this event won't be mistaken as just some, you know, human coup or... Uh, one, you know, one other sort of political revolution. It's, it's going to have supernatural elements associated with it, right? Paul says in verses 9 and 10 that the coming of the lawless one will be by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. Right? All power, all, all signs and wonders, all deception. It's as if God, at, at this point in, in time, says to Satan, okay, you've been restrained up until now. 
I am, I am lifting my restraint. Give me your best shot. Show me everything you've got. This is the ultimate appearance of an expression of evil. Everything that stands against God. All that happens right before the day of the Lord. So you won't miss it. Second big thing we can derive about our future from this text is that, a, and it really follows on from what I've just said, is that the troubles and afflictions and sufferings that you guys are experiencing now and that are continuing are going to continue into the future and they're likely to get worse before they get better. That just seems to be the trajectory of what Paul is tracing here. The apostles were, seemed to be concerned from Peter to John to Paul to make sure that we had realistic expectations as followers of Jesus about the future so that we're not, we're not shocked by suffering. We're not discouraged by suffering. We don't, we don't think that God has somehow forgotten us or let us down because we're suffering. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 4.12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Right? This, is, this is to be expected. That's the second big thing about the future we learn here. The third big thing is the one I really want you to get your hands around and your mind around because it's it, it, it's um, it's a positive reality about the future that I, I hope and, and believe will give you great confidence um, what we learn about the future here is that this ultimate revelation and expression of of evil as personified in Satan and 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 through his agent the antichrist that ultimate revelation in all his power in all, you know no holds barred all power arrayed against god and his people is going to be is going to turn out to be the biggest non-event in world history it's the great anticlimax right it's you, you, it happens almost once a year, right? The Super Bowls, right? Huge build-ups to, build to the Super Bowl. And most of the Super Bowls are a big anti-climax, right? right? And that's, it's sort of a letdown. We, we like these, you know, a, a close battle. This isn't close. <laughs> as soon as the Antichrist is revealed, what's going to happen? He'll be killed. Boom, boom. Right? By what? By some titanic conflict between the forces of truth and the forces of the lie? No! Ultimate evil is going to be killed by the breath of Jesus' mouth and brought to nothing by His mere appearance. I mean, how awesome is that? That word appearance is, 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 a, is, a, is a word that, that the Greeks usually associated with the appearance of the divine. So it, it conveys the idea of you know, when Jesus shows up, it's gonna, there's going to be a glorious splendor that befits the divine when, he, when, when Jesus appears um, bef uh, uh, w with Antichrist. But what this shows us is it's going to be no contest. One, one British, com I love the way one British, British commentator said it. He goes, you know, you get this, here it is, and the whole thing boils down to steamroller versus peanut. That's it. The contest between good and evil is not a contest. The contest between God and Satan is not a clash of equals or even somewhat equals. It's not even close. 
the mere breath of, the, of his mouth and, the, and his mere appearance will bring it all to nothing. I think, you know, I think we have that. We've been influenced by movies. We've been influenced by uh, Eastern philosophy to, to, to think about the world as, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, the battles, the, the, the forces of truth and the forces uh, of, of, of the lie are, are kind of more or less equal and, and history is kind of a working out of this and it's going to be, there's going to be this struggle at the end and, and, you know, if, and we like the movies, right, where the good guy gets backed into a corner and, he, and it looks like he's done and then he's, at the last second he snaps uh, victory from the jaws of defeat. There's none of that here. None of it. Okay, finally. Um, we've, we've, we've heard what Paul said about our present. We've heard what, what God has in store for the future. Now, what are the implications of that for, for how you live today? What are the implications for your life in the present in light, uh, for your life in the present in light of the future? Um, probably a lot of them. You could probably think of a lot of them. I've I'm going to run through quickly because we're done. Very close to done here. Five, five quick implications of all this for you. Practical implications, okay? Implication number one. Let the Word of God inform your living. You know, in our 24-7 news cycle, social media saturated world, we're in danger of letting Drudge or Facebook or Fox or CNN or MSNBC or WikiLeaks be the primary shapers of the way we think about the world and process what's happening to us. Friends, it's God's world. There's nothing wrong with keeping up with current events. We should. We should take a lively interest in them. But, the, but they must not shape our worldview. Our worldview has to be informed by and shaped by the apostolic witness and instruction that you get in the Word of God. Too many of us are being, are being discipled in the present by the wrong things. Implication number two. It's not just non-Christians who are seduced by the lie. You know, Christians can find themselves very easily uh, effectively worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It's very easy to get caught up in that, in that uh, way of thinking. Uh, and we can do it in countless ways, countless ways. It might manifest itself as being more concerned about our reputation rather than God's glory. It might show itself as being more concerned about our rights rather than our responsibility to die to ourselves and take up Christ's cross and follow Him. It might show itself by being more concerned about proving ourselves right rather than willing to be wronged. for the sake of peace. It's, it might show itself as over-believing that your future destiny is tied to a person or to a party or to a system or to a country. We could go on all day with the way we can, get, we can get, become more focused on the creature rather than the Creator. As Christians, we need to acknowledge the power and subtlety of the lie and keep checking our hearts. You know. Implication number three. The end times involve judgment. That's clear. And there are people in your life and there are people in my life that are caught up in the lie. They're caught up in the spirit of the age and they are perishing. Corey Ten Boom, you know, the Holocaust survivor and great evangelist, you know, warned Christians about not, 
you know, straightening the pictures on the wall when your house is on fire. The fact that Jesus is coming back physically, literally, in power to judge the world, set the world right, should renew within each of us, uh, you know, a desire and a motivation to tell the people we know and love, people we work with, the people we live with, the good news about the liberation from God's judgment by the work of Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection. Implication four. You know, one of the things I love about this text and I love about the teaching about the end times is that there's no way you can read this and not come away with the sense that Paul wants you to come away with, and that is that God's sovereign here, right? That God is in charge and that he is infinitely more powerful than all of the sin and evil in the world. We need to remember that. And, and, because it's going to help you and, and me have a broader perspective on our current suffering and trouble. We need to remember that while, although we may not know all the details, we may not know the timing, we may, may not know the identities of, the, uh, of current antichrists or the antichrist, but we know one thing, God wins. And it's no contest. So the fact that God is, is now restraining evil and not destroying it must mean that God now has a good and redemptive purpose for it. We know from other scriptures that God is delaying His judgment so His good news, His message can get out to generations of people to be saved. And you must know that if, if God is allowing suffering and trouble into your life, He is doing that from a place of total control and total goodness. And therefore, He is working that suffering and trouble out mysteriously for your good and His glory. That doesn't make suffering not suffering. That doesn't make pain not hurt. But it does remind you that your suffering is not without purpose. That your suffering doesn't have a master. And that God is, is, is there and He's with you in it and he's working it out for your good. Last thing, implication number five. And I save this for last because this is what powers all of the other implications. How do we, you know, how do we stay in the word? How do we, how do we you know, stand against the lie and, and, and keep the lie out of our hearts? How do we get motivated to share the gospel? How do we live with confidence and without fear in, in the face of our present suffering? Here it is, implication number five. Don't wait for the future to see and appreciate what we will see in the future, and that is the splendor and the glory of Jesus. We're going to see that because we'll be like Him. It's going to destroy Satan. But you don't, we don't have to wait for the end times to see his splendor and glory. We, may not, we won't see it in all of its fullness, but we see it, and we see it here. And I want you to sh I show you where we see it in this text. Some of the splendor and the glory of Jesus from 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, Paul said something, used a weird expression that, that theologians, again, have spilled a lot of ink over the last 20 centuries. Uh, when he says that, that the Antichrist is going to take his seat in the temple. 
What does that mean? Is it a literal temple? No, the temple's gone. What, um, there, I'm not going to get into all of that speculation. I, I think generally what Paul is saying is that, 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 that the Antichrist is going to put himself in the place of God. And in, and in his way of thinking, as, as, as a Jewish believer, the temple there, uh, he, he sees that, you know, putting himself in the place of God as, as sort of being centered in the temple. Now, what, what I want you to think about is, okay, think, think about that image. So, 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 so Antichrist puts himself in the place of God. He goes into a temple, and, and what happens? Well, you know, the, it's the center of the temple that's always the, where, where, the, where the divine resides. You, you see that all over the world. You go into Buddhist temples or Hindu temples, right? It's always right in the center. There's the, you know, there's the image of, of the God. Um, so, so he comes into the middle of this temple, and what does he do? He, well, he, he sits down symbol of reigning uh, he he claims to be God himself a and of course with that claim he's demanding worship he's demanding the worship of people at that time right uh, which is of course absolutely consistent with what we know about the character of Satan Satan has always wanted power and worship this is a power play Antichrist comes in, claims to be God, demands your worship. You see, he will matter, you will not. He puts you down to lift himself up. And now, contrast that with what Paul must have been thinking about by using this, this language. You see, Paul knew what was at the center of the Jewish temple, right? The Holy of Holies. The place where God himself would appear to the priest. And there's actually a seat there in the Holy of Holies. It's not a chair, but it's a seat. It's called the mercy seat. Made out of gold. It's actually, a, it's actually the lid on a box. The box is the ark. And under the lid, the, the seat, you open it up and in that box is what? The law. The man of law, lawlessness, puts himself at the center. And at the center uh, of, 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 of God's temple is, is his law. A reflection of who he is. A reflection of his character, his beauty, his power. It's his righteous demand of, his, of, of, of him to you and me as his creatures. This is how you must live. You're my creatures. You're in my image. This is how you live. This is how you must live. If that's all there were... Right? We'd, be, we'd be condemned. But on that seat, on that mercy seat, you wouldn't want to sit on it. Why? Because it's covered in blood. It's smeared with blood. That beautiful gold seat is smeared with blood. It's the blood of countless sacrifices, countless innocent substitutes. Pointing forward to the central truth of our faith, friends. At the center of Christianity is a king who laid down for us before we ever bow down to him. At the center of Christianity is a king who put himself down to lift us up. It's the exact opposite of the man of lawlessness. God knew we could not keep His law because of our sin. So He sent His Son, the King, who 
who obeyed it for us and then was killed to pay the penalty for your lawlessness and mine. Friends, that's a God you can love because He loved you deeply first. That's a God you can and want to obey because He obeyed for you first. Look at Him. Look at Jesus. Catch a glimpse of that splendor, that glory, of that self-giving love, that unselfish mercy. Be captivated by it. Let it shape how you think about the world today. How you live your life today in the midst of our suffering and trouble. Amen? Amen. Before I pray, let's, again, heavy stuff today, right? Um, let's take a, a minute or so of, of just silent prayer. Um, reflect on um, God's Word, what it says to you, what it has said to you, what it has spoken to you today, and then, and then pray to Him. If you're an unbeliever, and you're tired of, uh, uh, of stiff-arming uh, the Lord, use this as a time to, to, to come to Him. So let's, uh, let's uh, take a moment of uh, silent prayer, and then I'll, then I'll close us in prayer. Father, it's kind of weird, but it's also good to be silent before you. To remember and to know that you are God. Lord, we thank you that you are going to come again. We don't know so much. So much is, is unknown to us, Lord, but you have given us in your word what is sufficient for us to live in a godly way that honors Jesus in the midst of our present suffering. So help us to do that. Continue to shape our thinking and our actions around the truth of your gospel and the truth that you are sovereign and in charge and that you will ultimately set the world right. Thank you that by your mercy we are citizens of your kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.